We continue on our sermon series through what is a healthy church member, what is church membership. We've been looking and talking about uh, what it looks like to be a healthy church member, to be a church member. We've seen that the church, by definition, is a gathering and it's an assembly of people. Therefore, there have to be members to it. And the, the church, Big C, is the universal church from all time, all places, and all believers. And the church is its members. The church is its members. Yet there's this big C church, this universal church that exists. Yet that that universal church is expressed locally in places like First Baptist Church of Commerce. It's a visible, tangible expression of that universal church. And it's the place where we have to carry out those one another's of the Bible. If you're going to be a Christian who one another's well, it has to be within the confines of the local church. It's where we express that. So the third sermon we saw was who can be a church member. We said there's hardly any requirements. All you have to do is be a believer in Jesus Christ, turn from your sins and trust in him, and be baptized. Make that public by, by, by going under the water as in, uh, to make that, that belief public. Um, and those are the only requirements for church membership. Only requirements for church membership is born again and baptized. But once somebody becomes a member, what's expected of them? What, what, is, uh, what are some requirements? How should you be living as a church member? We've seen number one, we gather regularly. We gather regularly. Um, the church, again, by name is an assembly. It's a gathering of people together. So if we're going to be the church, then we need to gather together, assemble together. That happens most frequently here on Sunday mornings where we've all agreed to say, hey, let's gather together as frequently as we can on a Sunday morning and, and worship the Lord. So we, one, gather regularly. Two, we serve willingly. We talk about how God has given each of us a specific gift or gifts that we're to use to further his kingdom. We're to use it to build up his body. Um, you have a right and a responsibility to participate in that um, that serving one another, and you get served as you're in the local church. So we serve willingly. It's a stewardship of your gifts. In some sense, gathering regularly is a stewardship of your time. You set aside time during your week to gather with us. Serving willingly is a stewardship of your gifts, your spiritual gifts. And today we're going to talk about a stewardship of your resources. The third thing we're going to look at is giving generously. A, a, a faithful church member gives generously gives generously let me ask you this think of fire think of fire good or bad is fire good or bad think of that in your mind well fire is really one or the other it depends on your relationship with the fire right fire can cook your food and warm your home fire can also burn your house down and can burn you right so the fire is good or bad depending on your relationship with it. Money, good or bad. I think the same thing applies, right? It depends on your relationship with it. Money can be the means by which God blesses people and furthers his kingdom, but it can also be an idol to us. It can also be an idol. That's why we need to think biblically about money. The Bible speaks a lot about money from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Jesus himself speaks a lot about money and the world talks a lot about money and the world tends to comment on the way Christians talk about money, don't they? There was a very popular Instagram um, uh, 
account that went around. It was called Preachers and Sneakers. And what it did is it showed all these famous preachers that would be wearing shoes or sneakers that would be hundreds of dollars, even thousands of dollars. And you know what the idea is? They're jabbing at Christians saying, look, it's just a money laundering way of gaining money, right? So the world looks at how we deal with money. Uh, There's all kinds of criticisms that come our way. And what happens is we can fall off the horse one way or the other. We can fall off the horse one way or the other. In one sense, we can talk about money all the time. It's the measurement by uh, which a church is successful, how big their budget is. Or you can fall off on the other way. Instead of always talking about money, you can never talk about money. We need to be on the horse. We need to find a balanced approach to money and resources because God speaks a lot about it because that money, those resources, are a representation of your ability to, to, to work and influence people. It's an important thing that, that we have. So we shouldn't idolize it and worship money or love it because that's the root of all evil. Yet we shouldn't ignore it because then we're ignoring a way that God has blessed us in order to bless others and bring about glory for his name. Now, I'll be honest. Maybe, maybe you can think about yourself. Which side of the horse do you tend to fall off on? Do you tend to fall off on the side that worships money and thinks that's the, the, that's the means by which God measures your faithfulness, how much money you have and give? Or are you, like me, you fall off on the other side that's like, I don't want to talk about money. It's not that important. Just ignore it, right? Are you like that? Are you more like me? Well, I want to be a faithful uh, pastor to you. And because I want to be a faithful pastor to you, I think it requires us to look at passages like this so that we can all have a biblical view of money, not one that worships it and also not one that ignores it. So today we're going to see that giving generously according to the means God has given you imitates the story of Christ and brings God glory. Giving generously according to the means God has given you imitates the story of Christ and brings God glory. Another way to boil it down is this. Giving is about attitude, not amount. Giving is about attitude, not amount. Remember, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 and 9. I'm going to pray real quick before we read through a a few passages of this, uh, a few verses of this, and we'll get started. Father, we come before you, and Lord, we want to come before you humbly and submit to you. Lord, we want to ask that you would help us to understand this topic that can often be sensitive uh, for us. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to you with the the money and the resources that you've given to us. God, protect us from worshiping it. Also protect us from ignoring it. We just pray that we would be faithful as you have been faithful to use those resources that we have to bless others. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the context of the book of 2 Corinthians is this. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. A lot of times, the church of Corinth can teach us more about how not to be a Christian than how to be a Christian. Paul has a lot of stern words for the Corinthians about, hey, stop doing this. You need to quit doing that. You guys are doing this, and you shouldn't be doing it. In one of these, uh, in this passage particularly, Paul's going to be calling on them to give to the church in Israel. It's the relief of the saints. Years uh, later, after Jesus had died on the cross and had risen from the dead, there was a famine in Israel, and the believers in Jerusalem were suffering because of that. And during Paul's missionary journey, he was collecting a gift for these saints to take back to Jerusalem so that he could um, bring aid to their suffering. And the Corinthians had expressed at one point, yes, we'd like to give to that. 
And a, a letter later, they had not yet fulfilled their commitment to that. So Paul's writing them to encourage them to finish this task so that they would not be ashamed when they came to visit them to collect that money to give to the church in Jerusalem. And as we read through this passage, what we're going to do, we're not going to read both chapters all at one time. Uh, we're going to read a section, talk about it, read another section and talk about it. Um, but as we start off reading this, we're going to read verses one through five at the, at, in the beginning. And we're going to see that number one, giving should be generous and sacrificial. Giving should be generous and sacrificial. Let's read chapter eight, verses one through five. It says this, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that was given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Remember those people in, in, in Jerusalem. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. So we see in this passage that our giving should be generous and sacrificial. And Paul begins by giving us the example of the churches in Macedonia. This would have been the people um, in northern Greece, like Galatia, Philippi. And he starts off by saying, uh, speaking of their gift in verse 1, the grace of God that has been given among the churches. He refers to the gift, the money that was given in the churches, as the grace of God. When we give, the Bible refers to that giving as the grace of God. It's God working through that giving. People experience God's grace through giving. And remember, grace is God's kindness toward um, the undeserving. So God does that through the giving of these folks in Macedonia. And notice the how they get, how they gave. They gave out of their poverty in verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So these folks in Macedonia gave, and they gave out of a severe affliction and out of severe poverty. They gave. And notice that Paul refers to their gift as generous, as generous. Poverty and generosity don't go together in our minds often, do they? If they were impoverished, if they were in poverty, by definition, that means they didn't have a lot, right? So if they didn't have a lot, they could not have given a lot dollar-wise, right? Amount-wise. But Paul looks at the gift that was given by them and says, they gave generously out of their poverty. He says it was also given according to their means and in some sense above their means. It was according to what they had and they even gave above and beyond what they had in, uh, as a sacrifice. It reminds you of some other stories in the Bible, right? It reminds you of the widow's mite, the widow who had one mite, one penny left, and he gave and she gave all that she had. That penny would it can't, that can't even buy a piece of candy at, at uh, Star Cash anymore, right? If it was still there, you, you had to have like two pennies to buy a piece of candy there. Um, that wouldn't even buy anything. But God looked at her and said, she's, she's done an amazing thing. It also makes you think of the boy that had a, the lunch of five loaves and two fish. Nothing. Nothing. That would maybe feed half a family. When my family does a fish fry, two fish doesn't go very far. Um, I don't participate in the fish eating, but my family does. They love catfish. Two fish don't go very far. But 
This small gift that was given by the boy was used to feed 5,000 people. You can give generously even if you don't have a lot of money. Why? Because giving is about attitude over amount. Giving is about attitude over amount. You can give generously out of poverty. You can give generously out of poverty. And as Paul presents this example of the Macedonians, we're supposed to look at them and say, man, they were generous. But what was their inspiration for their generosity? Paul goes on to say what their inspiration and our, church, and our inspiration should be. Um, the inspiration of the Macedonians was the generosity of the Messiah. Look at verses 8 and 9 in chapter 8. It says this, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus laid aside his riches of his divinity and put on the rags of humanity. Jesus put on the, laid down the riches of his divinity and put on the rags of humanity. Jesus was rich. And this is not a reference to how rich he was when he was a kid or like his family was rich or he came from a rich household. No, this is referring to the riches he shared with the Father in eternity past. Jesus didn't start to exist that first Christmas day. No, he existed in eternity past in perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit. He's the second member of the Trinity surrounded by infinite love and inapproachable light. He was rich beyond comparison. Yet... Although he was rich, he became poor. He took on flesh. He added to his divinity humanity. And by doing so, we see in Philippians that he became, uh, took on the form of a servant. A lot of us can think about um, back when we were kids. You can say, man, we were poor and we were happy because we didn't know any better, right? A lot of times uh, poor people can be happy people and we say that because they don't know any better. Well, think about Jesus. He did know better. He knew better. He knew what it was like to exist in perfect serenity, no pain, perfect love, uh, no suffering, no lack of anything. But he chose to willingly lay that aside that he might take on our flesh. Name the richest man or woman on earth, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, whoever it is. If they lost every single penny they had, it would be nothing compared to how much Jesus laid aside to become like us. It's not a rags to riches story. It is a riches to rags story. The story of Jesus. He laid down his rights so that he could serve us for your sake. He was rich. He became poor for your sake. His concern was not for himself, but for the salvation of humanity for you. I want you to hear that for you. This was said to you, each and every single one of you, not the person beside you said to them also, but I want you to let it hit you in the face that Jesus became poor for you. He was born in a stable in a barn for you. He had nails pierced through his, his hands for you. He hung on the cross for you. He, he carried his cross up the mountain for you. Jesus became poor for you. For you. 
And don't pretend like that doesn't include you, because a lot of times we want to think that Jesus' death for us or even his blessings to us don't apply to us. We think, man, God's blessing everybody else, but he ain't blessing me. No, that's not true. Jesus died for you. And he did that so that you might become rich. What Christ has done has made you rich. And we can see what Jesus has done. It's, it's an example of what he did for us spiritually, right? He, it, it's not necessarily talking about physical means. It's, it's a metaphor referring to what Christ has done for us. But Paul is saying, hey, this mighty spiritual thing that God has done by saving you from your sins when you were poor and destitute, he, he made you alive with Christ, right? He blessed you. That spiritual thing that happened for you needs to result in a life lived in accordance to him. That spiritual thing that happens on the inside should, uh, should overflow on the outside. If you have heard of Christ and experienced Christ, then you should live like Christ. You should live like Christ. And your life should follow that very same pattern of you. Though you're rich, you become poor for other people's sake. That looks like giving up of your time. That looks like um, giving up of your, your gifts um, that we have. But also, that will look like at times giving up of the money God has given you so that you can aid other people. Every part of our lives is meant to be Christ-shaped. Every part of it. It doesn't matter whether it's your job, your family life, whatever. Even your wallet should be Christ-shaped. We used to say you can tell a lot about a person by their checkbook, right? Well, none of us do checkbooks anymore, so we have to say you can tell a lot about a person by their credit card, right? Your credit card or your debit card, it should be Christ-shaped. It should be cruciform, as they say. It should be shaped like the cross. In some way, you're using what God has given you to lay it aside so that you can bless others and bless God. Our gift, sorry, our giving should be generous and sacrificial, just as Christ was generous and sacrificial. But it doesn't stop there. We also see in this passage that our giving should be cheerful and voluntary. Cheerful and voluntary. <clears throat> We're going to skip the second part of chapter 8. It just speaks of the guy that they're sending to do this collection. It talks about Titus and another brother. And we're going to skip to chapter 9 and look at some verses toward the end of there. Pick up in verse uh, 6. We're going to read in verse 6 of chapter 9. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Verse 7, for each must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Let's look at verses 6 and 7 there. Our giving should be cheerful and voluntary. It says that God loves a cheerful giver. That's somebody that's happy to do something. If you're cheerful, that means you're happy. God loves to see you smile as you give. Think about when you... You've bought that perfect gift. You've been there, right? You know exactly what your wife wants. Like you buy that perfect gift. You wrap it and put it under the tree. Maybe it's your kids. You, knew, you know exactly what they want. They've been begging all year for this one specific gift. You know they're going to love it. You know that feeling you have when it's wrapped and you put it into their hands and you just cannot wait for them to open it. And you maybe even, you, you had a hard time not telling them that you bought it, right? And when they open that, it just, you just feel so good about them opening that thing, that's what it's supposed to be like 
when we give to the Lord. We should be so happy and so cheerful that we can participate in what God is doing through the means that he's given us. We should be happy. We should be cheerful. Giving is the same as every other Christian duty. God never wants you to do it just to do it. God wants you to do it because he, you love him and it, it, it brings you joy in doing it. Right? God doesn't want you to just check off a box every morning reading your Bible. He wants you to go to it and be, and be happy that you can open that treasure chest of wisdom and open it up and apply it to your life. God doesn't want you to just fast for no reason, uh, just to do it, just to do it. He wants you to do it because you love him and you're happy doing it. And all these things that God asks of us, we can do happily. We can do cheerfully. God never wants unhappy obedience. Christianity is not supposed to be like a job that we go to and hate. We've all been there. Like at some point, we've had a job that we did not like. And even if you don't like a job, you can be good at it, right? You can go and check all the boxes and do all the things, and you can actually be pretty good at your job and just hate every moment of it, right? God doesn't want your Christianity to be like that. As you're following him and living out these Christian disciplines, he doesn't want it to be like you going, Man, I guess I have to give. Man, I guess I have to read. Man, I guess I have to pray. You can do all those things. You can do them all good. But if you're not doing it cheerfully, God doesn't want it. That's what he says to the, the uh, Israelites in the Old Testament. He says, you can give me all these sacrifices and you can do them perfectly. But if your heart's not behind it, it means nothing to me. I'd rather you not sacrifice. I'd rather you just give me your heart if that's what it came down to. So how can we be cheerful? How can we be cheerful as Christians when we give? Well, one thing is to realize that your giving is not out of compulsion. It's not out of uh, compulsion means you're forced to. It's voluntary. That's what he says in verse 7 in chapter 9. He says, each of you should decide in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Don't feel pressured. No one's twisting your arm to give. It should be done not out of compulsion. For example, you're compelled to pay your taxes. And when you pay your taxes, how many of you do that cheerfully and lovingly? Not many of you, right? And when you do pay your taxes, you're reluctant to pay the amount that they ask for, right? We want to pay, we want to find write-offs and and ways that we can pay less taxes. Why? Because it's out of compulsion. You're compelled to do it. Now, we all know logically, yes, you give taxes and it proves your community and your country. That's the idea, right? We can, we can argue about whether that works right or not, but we all know that's the, that's the concept, right? But that's the giving that we give to the Lord is not a tax that he exacts on us. It's not out of compulsion. Another way to think of it, realize it's not a membership fee. It's not a membership fee, right? It's not that you have to pay a certain amount to be a part of the church. God doesn't do that. And so if we realize it's not a membership fee, that helps us to, to not go around looking for the lowest price, right? We don't compare our Costco membership to our Sam's Club membership and say, I'm going with the $49.95 rather than the $59.95, right? That's not what we're trying to do with our giving. We're to do it cheerfully, which brings us in, uh, to, to a question that might be, get brought up for you. If we're to give cheerfully and it's not under compulsion, well, then how, 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 much do I, how much am I supposed to give? How do I know what to give, when to give? So uh, this is kind of a little bit of an aside, but a lot of times we use the language of tithes and offerings, right? We use that word tithe. The tithe is a tenth. It literally means tenth, right? A tithe. That's why we say a tithe is 10%. It was introduced through Abraham, right? Father Abraham, many sons, that Abraham. He gave a one-time gift 
to a, a priest named Melchizedek, a thank, a thank you offering. That was a one-time thing that Abraham introduced. It was introduced through Abraham. Then it was instilled in the law. Later on, when Moses came and he brought the Ten Commandments and later on those other 600 or so laws, part of that was to tithe. The tithe was a means of supporting the Levitical priesthood, the people that would live and work at the, at the, at the tabernacle and the temple. It was a way to, to take care of them. They didn't have a land. Uh, they didn't have possessions like the other Israelites. So it was a way to take care of them. And when we think about the law, it wasn't just 10% of a paycheck. The Israelites in the Old Testament tithed on a lot of other things, Pro, um, not just their, their income that they would make, but when they would um, harvest something or buy something. There was a lot of different tithes that they would do, which would actually, scholars say, add up to over 20% of their income would go to a tithe. So that was instilled in the law. The tithe is also invoked in the New Testament. Jesus mentions the, uh, mentions the tithe and even commands people to do it in Matthew 23. But we have to realize Jesus himself was still living under that Old Testament, that Old Covenant. So as he's commanding a tithe, he's also commanding people to go and forgive their brother before they offer a sacrifice at the altar. We're not sacrificing at the altar, right? We realize that Jesus, when he's commanding these things, he's commanding them within the confines of that Old Testament, Old Covenant. There's a transition period happening there. So the tithe is introduced through Abraham, instilled in the law, invoked in the New Testament, but it's absent in this passage. This is one of the biggest passages that we have um, that, that speaks of giving in the New Testament and the word tithe isn't in there, which is interesting, right? I think the concept is this. Paul doesn't mention the amount because giving is not about an amount any longer. Our giving is about the attitude behind it. It should be voluntary, not compelled. As we think of um, <clears throat> what we should give, we shouldn't think of a tithe. We should see it as a stewardship. God has given you something that's not yours. You're taking care of it for a time being, and then you're giving it back to him. And as we think of the tithe as something like a tax, that's going to cause us to say, how can I give less? How can I pay the, the least amount? But when we think of the, our offerings, not as a, a tithe, but as a, as a stewardship, that frees us to give the amount that we see that God is calling us to give. We don't have to look at 10% and think, man, I've given enough. If I give 10%, that's enough. I've, I've done my quota. I don't need to give any more. Or if you're unable to give 10%, you shouldn't think, man, I'm falling short of what God is wanting me to do because I can't give 10% because giving is not about an amount. For most of us, 10% is a nice, good location to go. For the most of us, that's going to be good. For some of us, to only give 10% is going to be unfaithful to the Lord because you can give more. For some of us, to give 10% might not be faithful to the Lord. Maybe you should give less. 10% is a good area to shoot for, but remember, it's not out of compulsion. You should, like as this verse says, consider in your heart how much you should give. That means you should set time aside to think, how much should I give and how can I give regularly, generously, and sacrificially as the Lord commands. I'm never going to say, and I don't think the Bible commands us to give a specific amount any longer. I'm never going to look at how much you guys give and say, hey, you're not giving enough. You need to be giving more. That's not my job. It's between you and the Lord. You consider in your heart the amount that you should give. <clears throat> and as you give it, whether it's the widow's might or you're like... Um, 
uh, Zacchaeus and you're like giving away half of everything you have, whatever that amount is, do it cheerfully and happily and voluntarily because that's what the Lord blesses. Remember, giving is about an attitude, not an amount. So we see that giving should be generous and sacrificial. Giving should be cheerful and voluntary. And finally, giving should be empowered and effective. Here's what I mean by that. Look at chapter 9, verse 8. Chapter 9, verse 8. It says this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Goes on to say in verse 9, as it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase your harvest of righteousness. So you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So we see in that passage, it says that one, God provides for our giving. God provides for your giving. He says, God's grace is going to abound to you so that you can give. God is the one who provides your giving. He gives you the gift so that you can give it. And when he does give you that gift, what does he do? He uses that to produce thanksgiving. That's what it said down there in verse uh, 12. Said that you supply these saints needs and what happens as a result that overflows in thanksgiving to God. So God gives you the means to give and then he produces fruit through your giving. Think about this when you when I'm talking about kids, that's the stage of life I'm in. Right. Think about when you take your kid shopping for Mother's Day or Father's Day. Your kid has no job. Everything they have came from you, right? They don't have a job. Even if they work an allowance, it's your money that you're giving to them. But what do you do? Mom, you take your kid to the store. You buy that tie for dad that's going to hang in the closet and he'll never wear whatever, right? But when when you take your kid to the store and you buy, you're giving them money, your own money, so that they can buy your own gift, right? That's what God does with this. He provides the money, the, the means that we have to use. And then when he gets that gift from us, dude, he's pumped to get it. None of us, when our kid brings us something, even if it's like the the smallest minuscule thing, none of us say, that's no good, dude. That's not even a good painting. None of us do that, right? You hang that piece of paper that they got from church, children's church, you hang it on your fridge and you're like, dude, I love that stick figure, man. I love that you gave that to me. That's what God does with Argus. He provides you the means by which you can give him a gift. And then when you give him a gift, He's pumped to get it from you. And remember, he's the one that gave you the amount of money that you have. So he doesn't look at you and say, man, I can only give 10 bucks this month and that's it. He doesn't look at you and think, you you stingy, no good, whatever. If that is what you've considered in your heart and that's what God's calling you to give, he looks at it and says, man, that's generous. That's sacrificial. And I love that you've done that. I love it that you've done that. So no matter how much you give, whether it's a little bit or a lot of bit, God looks at that if it's done with a cheerful, generous, sacrificial heart and says, that's awesome. And you know what I'm going to do with that? I'm going to take that and I'm going to multiply it tenfold, fiftyfold, a hundredfold. That's what the, what the gospel tells us. So when we think about that, you think about this. You do have the ability to give generously. 
It's not based on the amount of money that's in your bank account. It's based on the, the heart that you have behind it. You have the ability to give generously. And if you don't have a ton to give, um, if maybe if you don't have as much as somebody else, that's not your fault. And you shouldn't feel guilty about that because it's God who gives you the means. He's the one that provides that. <clears throat> and know that when you do give, <clears throat> that giving is not a loss. If you sow, you will reap. If you give, God will use that to further his kingdom. Remember, because he's the one that provides it and he's the one that produces out of it. You're just faithful to do it. You're just faithful to give. So as we wrap up this morning, as we think about um, how God has blessed us, I want you to do two things for me. Um, just two simple applications. Number one is go home and read 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 8 and 9. The, the two chapters we read from, from today... There's so much there. We could have spent weeks and weeks in just these two chapters. Go home, read chapters 8 and 9 uh, with your spouse um, or, or whatever, or personally. Read that, with, read that and consider that. <clears throat> and then number two, I want you to pray and decide in your heart, am I being faithful with what God has given me? Am I being faithful? That takes time, right? You got to set aside, set aside some time to think, am I using my finances the way God would have me use them? And then it takes an action, right? How and when and, and how much am I going to give and put that into place? So consider in your heart, your finances. Consider what would be generous and sacrificial for you and your family and be a good steward of that. And trust, no matter how big or small the amount is, God will use it if you're faithful, uh, sorry, if you're generous, sacrificial and cheerful as you do it. And when we do that, God is going to bless you for it. You might not see it in the way that you expect to see it. Um, just like these Macedonians, they gave and the, it, the Jewish people in Jerusalem are going to be the ones that reap the benefit from that at that moment. God does in a mighty work through them. Sometimes we don't get to see what our, our, what our giving does, but it will. When we get to, but sometimes we do get to see that, right? As we give here locally in our church or we give to the Operation Christmas Child, if we give to the Edna McMillan envelope I threw, um, whatever you're giving to, God can use that. Sometimes you get to see those blessings up front. Sometimes you don't get to see those until eternity later on. But know that as you give, if you do it generously, sacrificially, and cheerfully, God will use that to bless not only you, but the people around him, and ultimately will bring him glory. I finish off by reading these last few verses of this, of this passage. Verse 13, chapter 9, verse 13. For by their approval of this service, speaking of the, the people who are going to receive the gift, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel. Saying people are blessed by you just being faithful to the gospel. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I mean, God has given to us so much, spiritually and financially, and that, that what he has given to us, we should return generously to him. Let's pray.